Over the holiday break, we are bringing you The Sound Aquatic, a five-episode mini-podcast published by Hakai Magazine in May of 2021. Here's episode one. Can you hear me now? Listen to this. Can you guess what that sound is? Here's a hint. It was a late spring evening in 1942 when tests were completed and the night operators settled down for their first lonely vigil. Suddenly, red lights flared on the panel. Warning signals from those hydrophones in the bay. What caused these strange sounds? No evidence of any unusual craft could be found. Yet each evening, the phenomenon occurred and soon became one of the most baffling mysteries of the war. The military turned to the scientists for help. And at last, the answer came with the clatter of the teletype. Disregard unusual hydrophone signals. Sounds made by schools of fish known as croakers. Fish that talk. Yep, that thing that sounds like a riveter, it's actually a fish, a fish called a croaker. So why were Navy military folks in the midst of a war so focused on the sounds that fish make? To prevent this. That massive explosion occurred during the Second World War, when an undersea mine designed to detonate in response to the sound of an enemy ship propeller was mistakenly triggered by the powerful pulsing voices of fish. It's the kind of colossal mishap that happens when we fail to realize that the ocean is a world based on sound. My name is Ellen Kelsey, and this is The Sound Aquatic, The Ocean and the Anthropos. past few years, researchers have been making astonishing discoveries about the ways fish, lobsters, and all kinds of other ocean animals use sounds, and about the damage caused by shipping networks, seismic surveys, underwater blasts, and other sources of ocean noise pollution. So in early 2020, I got together with podcast producers Amy Kingdon and Kat Pine to start brainstorming a series all about ocean sounds. How, how do they hear? Do they? I don't know how the fish hear. I really hear. don't know. Yeah. How do fish hear? Do fish hear? Do fish hear? <laughs> well, they must if they're making these sounds, right? But I'm, I'm trying to. to think about... When I think of a fish, I don't think of ears on a fish. <laughs> yeah, because they don't have those external pinnas, do they? Like no. the parts that stick out of us? I don't, I don't think I've seen that on a fish, have I? That would look so weird on a fish. That would be very Can't weird. Picture that. Although I've seen many cartoon fish wearing sunglasses, which would require some sort of ear. <laughs> <laughs> it 
That's a good point. We do we do need ears to wear sunglasses. I never thought of that before. Hearing, it turns out, is a key sense for many, perhaps even most, ocean animals. I think I understand that some fish grunt by, you know, constricting their swim bladders, right? Yes. So they're not using their mouths. And, and I know for a, a long time, you know, it's very hard for us if we see a beluga, mm-hmm. um, those types of whales, to realize they're not making a sound out of their mouth. They're making a sound out of their blowhole. <laughs> you know, so you see them with their open mouth and that's where you put the little thought bubble, but that isn't actually <laughs> where the words come out. Yeah. I mean, belugas have lips in their blowhole and then they hear with their jaws. And there's way more fish and way more marine invertebrates than there are mammals. Absolutely. So so really, (laughs) we have a a minutely skewed idea about sound and hearing and noise and all of the things that we're going to look at. But just as we were getting started, a sound above the waves changed everything. (laughs) Virus cases in China. A surge reported just now official. Canada has its first confirmed case of the new strain of coronavirus. The province of Ontario announced a provincial state of emergency. <laughs> Medical supplies for a family emergency or to exercise or being told to go out only for essential purposes. These measures and especially social distancing are how we can ease the burden on our doctors and nurses so they can. Like people all over the world, we reacted to the COVID-19 lockdowns by pivoting. We quickly realized we weren't just creating a podcast about remarkable fish voices. We were making it in the midst of a globally significant moment for ocean research. And because as people stopped moving around, ocean coastlines suddenly got quieter. Our first call was to Christian Rutz. Uh, my name is Christian Rutz, and I'm a professor of biology at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. COVID-19 lockdowns shut down human activity so dramatically, Christian and his colleagues gave it a whole new name, the anthropause. We know that, that it is uh, significant, and it's, a, it's an effect that uh, was felt all around the world. Christian is also the president of the International Biologging Society. Biologging uses miniature electronic tags, which are attached to animals to track and uncover the hidden lives of wild birds, mammals, insects, and even fish. Many of our members fitted these tracking devices onto their chosen study species before COVID-19, not knowing that this pandemic was about to unfold. And we realized that This is an absolute goldmine of data where we can look at animal movements and behavior from before, during and after lockdown and see how animals respond to the presence or absence of of humans. We've been offered data for almost 200 different species. So we are talking tens of thousands of animals that have been wearing these tiny tracking devices, ranges from small songbirds to, to large whales. And you're dealing with such a mountain of data. Do you have a way of expressing the quantity of data you have? The, the word that comes to, to mind is mind-boggling. It's, a, it's an avalanche of data. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that I, I haven't slept much over the, the past four months. I mean, these people have pulled endless all-nighters to, to launch this project because of the, the pace at which this opportunity arose and needed to be grabbed. 
In the case of the coast, scientists could suddenly hear fish, crabs, whales, even plankton, without the ever-present din of recreational motorboats and other sources of ocean noise pollution. Here in the Salish Sea, along the west coast border of Canada and the United States, ocean noise dropped by more than 50%. By late March, when things had dramatically shut down, it was a whole other experience launching and going out and spending time. First of all, due to the COVID restrictions, I was operating solo. So I would just out in my boat alone since we didn't want to uh, have multiple people in the boat and the boat launches were closed. None of the whale watch operators were going out. And it, it was really a, a feeling that harkened back to 30 years ago when traffic was less. Getting a chance to to see whales in situations that are what you'd have to call more pristine, I think is always heartening in that sense. Of course, you're there, so now you're not quite as pristine because you're out there. And I always want to be cognizant and recognize my own contribution and presence and not pretend like, oh, there was nothing else there. <laughs> of course, I was there. <laughs> Here's why John Kellenbokaitis, a biologist with the Cascadia Research Collective, was so eager to get out on the water. Partly because there was this dramatic decrease in vessel traffic, one of our interests was to collect uh, skin samples uh, by biopsy to be able to look at stress hormone levels. Opportunities to quantify the impact of noise on coastal animals at a global scale by seeing how they react when noise pollution drops are incredibly rare. In fact, it's only happened once before in my lifetime. And like COVID-19, it was also because of a tragedy. And then all of a sudden, I thought it sounded kind of louder, but I looked up and all of a sudden it smashed right dead into the center of the World Trade Center. Nearly two decades ago, when the planes hit the Twin Towers in New York, the world went into an instant and unprecedented lockdown. Planes were grounded, borders slammed shut. In the Bay of Fundy, ship traffic dropped by 200%, and underwater noise pollution decreased by six decibels. That's like a volume shift from this to this. Okay, maybe that doesn't sound like much of a difference, but imagine someone constantly running a vacuum in your house at six decibels. And immediately after the 9-11 attacks, uh, they collected a series of fecal samples from uh, North Atlantic right whales that then revealed dramatically decreased levels of stress hormones. Essentially, the whale's stress levels dropped when the underwater ship noise did. And that surprising study of decreased uh, you know, stress levels is partly why in this current round, we were trying to think, Are there, is this another opportunity to look at that? Some scientists have already reported changes in sounds and even behaviors of ocean animals during the first lockdowns. Matt Pine, a researcher with the University of Victoria, was excited by the response of dolphins to the COVID-19 lockdown back home in New Zealand in March 2020. Auckland's uh, our biggest city, where a third of the country lives, has sort of that highest, one of the higher boat ownership rates of anywhere else in the world is sort of coming up to 200,000 boats. We've got this very busy metropolitan area um, right on the doorstep of an ecologically significant embayment. We had hydrophones in the water before lockdown and we were measuring up to 70% of a 24-hour period containing boat noise. 
as soon as sunrise came to sunset, we have almost continuous boat noise. But unlike other parts of the world, we entered a complete lockdown on vessel traffic. So it wasn't voluntary, it was enforced. Within days of lockdown, boat noise occurred for just 8% of a 24-hour cycle. So overnight, we've turned everything off. Underwater noise in the harbour dropped 15 decibels in some areas. We had a lot more people reporting marine mammals closer to shore, up rivers. We're having animals where they don't normally go because it's normally so noisy for them. But what we're particularly interested in is the ability of bottlenose dolphins and common dolphins to communicate with one another in this much more quieter world. During the lockdown, we were picking up fab. We were picking up dolphin whistles and call rates had increased and that stuff for far longer periods of time than we were before lockdown. Right near the city, you can hear invertebrates crawling over the like over the hydrophone, you can hear fish grunting, you can hear dolphins whistling and waves crashing on the beach four kilometers away. And it's just, it's just, I've never heard an ocean without boats before. This is an unprecedented opportunity because we're, you know, we can now have actual trends, correlations and data that were just impossible to get before. I mean, it costs billions of dollars. It's the world's most expensive experiment. We won't go back to how we were because now we know. One of the arguments I've always sort of faced in the past is, you know, it's, it's all theory based. It's all, you know, you think that would happen and that sort of stuff. But now, of course, we've got the actual numbers. The world's most expensive experiment. Imagine a scientist proposing to shut down the world's coasts to see what happens when the noise is gone. No wonder researchers jumped at this grim but once-in-a-lifetime chance. The reason the ocean anthropos is such a big deal is because leading up to the lockdowns, more and more studies were revealing how much life in the ocean depends on sounds. Yeah, everything. So from, from the zooplankton um, that use sound as orientation cues to the fish that use them to avoid predators, to find mates, to the marine mammals that use sound to eavesdrop on their prey and, and use vocalizations to maintain their group. Um, to your whales that will sing um, and listen to their environment during their migration. So every, everything is linked to that soundscape and all animals are impacted uh, sort of across the board. As our producer Amy explains, the science of listening underwater really took off around World War II. After the war, um, the Navy kind of really upped their game in terms of trying to figure out, well, what fish make noises? How do they make noises? When? So they actually got a woman called Bobby Fish. Very good name. That I is think. so on point. That's her real name. That was her real name, Bobby Fish. Not the wrestler. There's a wrestler called Bobby Fish right now who's active. Just want to be clear. Right now. The U.S. Navy did not send <laughs> the wrestler moment. Bobby Fish. <laughs> and she went up and down the east coast of the U.S. And she recorded all of these fish sounds. In December 1963... A woman with short, curly hair sat behind the wheel of a grey Chevrolet sports wagon as she drove north from Rhode Island along America's eastern shore towards Maine. The car was packed with gadgets. There were banks of waterproof microphones, spools of cables hundreds of metres long, two-way radios and walkie-talkies, 
battery packs and generators, a collapsible aquarium tank made of canvas and an aluminium boat strapped to the roof. This was a fast response mobile listening station on a mission to find noisy fish. The driver's name, it just so happened, was Marie Poland Fish. She was usually known as Bobby. That's Helen Scales describing Bobby's maverick sound collecting setup in her book, Eye of the Shoal. Bobby managed to record the sounds of more than 300 species of marine animals, from fish to mammals to shellfish, and in so doing, helped anti-submarine vessel personnel to more accurately identify true enemy targets. Today, there's an international focus on marine bioacoustics, studying underwater sounds to understand the intricacies of how animals breed and find their way and conduct their gloriously complex lives in the ocean. Then on the other hand, we have the huge benefits that have come in from new technologies. 10, 15 years ago, it was the advent of, you know, high capacity remote recording packages that could record the sound of whales for, you know, months and months at a time, 24 hours a day. Uh, but then some of the tagging technologies, uh, uh, I've now probably deployed suction cup attached tags on close to a thousand different whales along the U.S. West Coast of many species. Some of the tags we're deploying are recording 12 different sensors recording hundreds of times a second. Uh, so you're getting this incredibly high resolution data, sometimes hours of video with it as well, uh, <clears throat> that give us insights into whale behavior we never had before, how they feed, how they move, you know, how they respond to different human threats. So those have been, you know, really kind of advantageous things. And the really beautiful thing is, the more scientists listen, the more new sounds they discover. I think research currently suggests around 50% or more of all fish species are communicating using sound. So it's clearly a really important mode of communication for them. Um, and probably people don't realize that there are dawn and dusk choruses underwater, just as there are uh, on land. How glorious is that? Beneath the waves, there are choruses of fish singing at dawn and dusk, much like the birds in spring. My name is Professor Cullen Brown, and I'm a uh, a professor at the Macquarie University campus in Sydney, uh, and, and I'm head of the fish lab. You say that with great enthusiasm. I'm glad to see that. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a fish lover, clearly. I am a fish lover, and I'm not terribly concerned about what fish they are as long as they're fishy. Uh, sound production in, in fishes is extremely diverse. The mechanisms that they use is far more diverse than any other organism. So. It's, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's, and it's grossly underestimated, I think, generally by the public. Callum, could you just talk me through them really quickly? I know you mentioned the swim bladders and the muscles and um, what, what other ones? I know they can fart, right, to make <laughs> yes, gassy sounds. Yeah. What, yeah. Are, what um, other sounds they do can, they use? They can also uh, grind their teeth. They can make noises using... Um, so in, in, in their gills, they have gill rakers as well, which they can also grind. They can make noises by moving their jaws around. Um, 
all sorts of weird and wonderful ways uh, of making noises. So, um, yeah, swim bladder related vibrations, whether it's muscles or, or whatever else. So, yeah, the diversity is huge. And, and that really, we've only come to appreciate that, I would say, in the last three or four years. And it's such an untapped area of research that basically you could go and look at any fish in any context and whatever you discover would be new. And it's not just fish making sounds. Scientists are rapidly discovering that it's krill and crabs and coral and... Christopher Clark, retired senior scientist from Cornell University, where he was the director of the Bioacoustic Research Program, likens the discovery of sounds in the ocean to the infinite wonder of space. We are now recording and constantly documenting more sounds that we do not know what they are than we know what they are. You dive into that universe of sounds, and yes, metaphorically, you recognize some of the stars and the planets, but mostly you find yourself saying, I've never heard this before. What on earth is it? There are better ways to protect marine life and ourselves from a barrage of noise than a global pandemic. And we'll be exploring those too in this series. But for now, I want to leave you with a little gift of listening to what a fish might hear on a rainy day. Tune into episode two, where we slip beneath the waves to explore how baby fish, tiny enough to rest on the head of a pin, listen their way to healthy coral reefs and how some scientists are using reef soundscapes to combat the damage caused by climate change. It's an episode that's chock-a-block full of surprises about how ocean animals use sound to find their way home. We'd like to thank Christian Roots of the University of St. Andrews, Scotland, John Kalambakaitis from the Cascadia Research Collective, Cullen Brown of Macquarie University, Christopher Clark of Cornell University, Matt Pine with the University of Victoria, the author of Eye of the Shoal, Helen Scales, and the Ocean Conservation Research Group for their sound recordings. This episode of The Sound Aquatic, The Ocean and the Anthropause was produced by Amy Kingdon, Katrina Pine, and me, Ellen Kelsey. Our theme music is by Tobin Stokes. The team also includes Adrian Mason, Jude Isabella, and fact checker Megan Osmond Jones. We are an endeavor of Hakai Magazine and are produced on the shores of the Salish Sea in Victoria, British Columbia. Mm-hmm.